Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. A very warm welcome to everyone to this new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have the crew back together uh, again this week. We have Phil Ordway of Anabatic Investment Partners out of Chicago. We have Elliot Turner of RGA Investment Advisors in Stamford, Connecticut, and Chris Bloomstrand of Semper Augustus Investment Group in St. Louis, Missouri. And that's also the order that we're going to go in uh, today. So, Phil, I'll turn it to you. Go ahead. Thanks, John. So last week, uh, for anyone who listened, you you caught what we did then is was a blind valuation exercise where I had two companies side by side with just the financial description uh, of each, and I kind of laid it out to Elliot and John and Chris to see uh, their, their thoughts on it before we did the big reveal, and it, it worked out pretty well. I thought it it generated a really interesting discussion, at least from my perspective. We got some good feedback on it, so I thought I'd keep that ball rolling a little bit with just a slight twist this week. We're going to do two new companies. Um, but with uh, one in particular, but really both that tie into just a much broader discussion of a lot of the things we've been talking about the past few weeks. Um, so with no further ado, I'll jump right in. You guys have all the their numbers in front of you. So I'll give a brief description of each and then let you guys kind of chime in and opine with your thoughts if you want to put either a valuation guess or as for anyone who missed it last week, Chris absolutely nailed the uh, the one company by calling it out and, and actually naming it. Uh, if you want to try that again, feel free, be my guest. Um, so company A this week should look pretty typical for a lot of people in the last few years. It's been growing the top line at a prodigious rate over the last five years. It's had a 30% compound annual growth rate in the sales. Margins have been high, but um, at least they started out low and now they've they've gotten quite healthy the growth growth gross margins been in the 30s the operating margins climbed from the mid single digits to kind of the low to mid teens um, it's gone from burning a lot of cash to what looks like will be at least a slight cash generation this year um, it's got a pretty good return on capital the the whole way along the balance sheet has been growing massively so there's been huge investment here along the way in something um, but it doesn't look too overburdened with debt um, at this point by any stretch. Um, and in the other category, in company B, I will say, by the way, again, both of these companies are, are somewhat similar, at least for illustrative purposes. They're, they're uh, at least directly related in some way. Um, and they're both U.S. listed and, and U.S. domiciled public companies. Uh, company B, to contrast, has actually been growing very, very slowly on the top line. Uh, this year will actually take a slight step back on the top line and, and a slight step back in, in margins. Looks like it's projected to have some sort of big uh, restructuring charge or write-off. It's going to be unprofitable um, at the net income line, but still reasonably profitable above the line um, and still generating quite a bit of cash. And it's been generating quite a bit of cash the whole way along. Uh, returns on capital are, are certainly average to maybe slightly above average, paying big dividends the whole way along. Balance sheet has grown with one big leap there. So I think anybody would spot that right away and say that looks like maybe there was an acquisition 
Um, but the balance sheet now has, you know, quite a bit of debt on it. Um, so we'll have to evaluate that as it, as it, as it comes. So that's kind of the high level lay of the land. We'll put the link to these actual numbers up in the, in the show notes. And by the way, there was a mistake in last week's, which I fixed. So I apologize for that. But, um, anyway, anybody care to jump in, Chris, John, Elliot, whatever you guys, uh, care to point out, and then I'll do the big reveal and, and tie it back into a couple of things that, that really stand out to me about both of these companies. Well, you're going to not like me again. You know it already? Well, I own B, so it took me about <laughs> all right, well then, All right, so these are the real numbers. By the way, I should have done the preamble again. I didn't try to disguise the numbers. These are actual numbers, actual <laughs> historicals, and current consensus fact set numbers for 2020 with as few adjustments as necessary. And so why don't you recuse yourself from company B? But I should also reiterate that this is not a long or a short recommendation by any stretch of the imagination. Unlike Chris, I don't own either one of these and I don't short anything. So by no even implied, I don't want anybody to take away from this. that This is an implied recommendation in, in either direction. So uh, with that, do you have any, Chris, let's start with you though. What are your thoughts on A, maybe in contrast to B, since you know B so well, just don't, don't name it and you can send it, sort of walk through well, it. Well, I mean, I mean, you really, I mean, A or, or B rather, because I own it was so obvious and you, and you, hit the nail on the head in your opening remarks, there was a, a major acquisition. And for a business that does, you're showing $65 billion in revenues down from 19 revenues. There was a big jump from 18 to 19. So there, there was a major acquisition here. You could see it in the capital structure of the business. When, when you see total assets jump up from $98 billion to $194 billion, and the intangible number there jumped from 38 to 103 you know, for a business doing 60 plus billion in revenues, there would be very few, if any, you know, no other candidates that would fit that bill. So I think, you know, you take A and, you know, given your comp rater last week to kind of show, you know, a business that's a lot more mature with a margin structure that's been in place for a time uh, versus, you know, a business that's, that's parabolically, if you will, growing its top line, kind of growing into itself, you know, you think, you know, what, what are the competitors to be? So, you know, A can only be one other business as well to me. I don't know if you want me to name them or no. No, you're too much of an expert. I'm going to have to start <laughs> then like shaving a decimal place off of these or something because it's your two. Let's come back to you because I want to hear some more unvarnished thoughts from yeah, good John idea. and Elliot. And then we'll, we'll tie it back in because you'll probably have some valuable things to add about where I'm trying to go with this as well. Yep. Yeah, I'd be happy to jump in and, you know, give my totally uninformed perspective here. You know, I'm giving these numbers a look for the first time. I try to come in totally clean today. Um, sounds like Chris did too, but instantly recognized it. I, I'm not in the same boat here. You know, company A, clearly impressive top line growth. One of the things I like to see off the bat is as they're growing, their gross margin is going up pretty nicely as well. EBITDA is a little bit all over the place. So there's definitely something uh, slightly funky going on there. You know, it had been growing considerably and taking a big step back this year, despite higher gross margins and uh, good growth in the top line. That um, could be goofiness from the fact set estimates too. So I wouldn't get too hung up on that. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah. Because EBIT itself is actually going up pretty right. nicely. So I'm like, what's, what, right. what am I missing here? Um, I, would, so, I mean, that is the number that facts that shows, but I would ignore that for all 
intensive. Okay, yeah, I will ignore that then because like, you know, gross margin and operating margin are scaling with the business. So this thing's obviously growing. And interestingly, I think, you know, this will be their first year of free cash flow positive, you know, after uh, CapEx. So, you know, obviously, like, it's kind of nice that this thing exists uh, at the inflection or is at the inflection. Um, ROE is pretty nice. Um, they've got quite a bit of growth in their total debt as they've scaled, right? Net debt has gone up uh, quite a bit too. So they use debt to finance a good chunk of their growth. Um, but assets have grown grown as well, uh, not as much as, as debt, but uh, they use the debt to, to grow things. Um, and they're getting the results, at least in getting to position of positive cash flow. You know, a company like this, I think, definitely deserves a fairly nice multiple. Um, it's hard to what, what I like to think about is like, you know, a justified PE or price to sales, knowing what an out year margin structure should look like. So it's not quite at maturity on their net income margin, but with where they are at about like a ten plus percent. You'd, you'd be willing to pay at least three times sales on an EV basis for some, you know, or actually on on, on a market cap basis for something like this. Um, so talking at least, um, you know, you didn't give us units. I'm going to assume that's 24 billion in revenues. So something like, you know, in the ballpark of 70 to 75 billion for the market cap. I didn't uh, give prob- any units. That could be $24,000 for all you know. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, so 75, whatever it may be, or upwards. And the more I know, the better I think about it. Things I'd want to know more about is how much of their uh, margin goes toward R&D, how much goes towards sales. Clearly, those things are scaling, um, considering operating margins gone up uh, quicker than gross margin. Um, So I'd feel pretty good about assuming a slightly higher margin structure. So I'll say like, you know, 100 units or up on the uh, expected market cap here. Company B, I think, you know, the acquisition comes through pretty clearly. One of the things that concerns me in this all is, you know, they whatever they acquired has decently lower gross profitability and didn't really kick in much in terms of uh, EBIT. So, you know, I, I... I'm left a little uncertain. Like there's other factors that might help me figure this out a little better. Um, but before that acquisition, they're pretty nice ROE, pretty steady business, really nice and boring. Um, you know, it, it would definitely seem to warrant with a 25% ROE somewhere in the mid-teens of uh, EBITDA multiple uh, here. You know, so on on that business, you know, what seventeen units. We'd be talking somewhere like 200 or up on the uh, market cap. Yeah. So, I mean, those are some of my quick hits on it. Um, definitely would, would be curious to know a couple more things. But yeah, that, I, I would be concerned about what happened with the gross margin. Would really have to dig into that a little bit, like what this new business is like and what the rationale was for. Got it. John, do you want to chime in before I... Uh, yeah, maybe just deal. real quick. Um, you know, Elliot covered pretty much everything I was going to say. Um, I think Company A is probably something I wouldn't buy. <laughs> it's probably out of my valuation range and it just isn't throwing off the kind of cash flow I'd want to see. Company B, the acquisition seems like maybe it's a, it, it's a question mark because 
total assets basically doubled uh, with that. And yet revenue was only up like 15%, you know, and then if you look at 2020, it's almost like uh, the acquisition never happened. My hunch on the valuations, just uh, kind of thinking what you're trying to do here, Phil, probably company A and B are fairly similar, like around a hundred billion market cap. Um, so yeah, I'll leave it at that. All right. Well, those are both very educated, good common sense guesses. And so unfortunately, I'm going to have to be more careful next week because I've, I, now that he mentioned that, I did remember Chris talking about this before. So, And if you own it, it would stand right out. Company B is Disney, um, which Chris is, I think, alluded to, or maybe I've just read about it somewhere. But uh, So that, that one did jump right out to him. And then once you have the the throw in that they're they're somehow tied together. I think it's probably pretty easy for him to to jump over and realize that company A is actually Netflix. And the reason that I picked Netflix and Disney in this case was threefold. One is that Netflix was the highest returning stock in the S and P 500 over the last decade, ended in December of 2019. So, and again, there's a lot of cherry picking in that date. It's an arbitrary period of time, but the stock went from under eight dollars to over three hundred and $20 during that period. It's now well over $500 because it's up so much this year, but that's a 4,000% return or 45% a year compounded. You actually got a second chance to buy it after the Quickster, Quickster debacle in 2011. Um, but even over the last three and five years, um, the numbers are shockingly consistent. So 38% compounded over the last five years, 41% compounded over the last three years, and that's through yesterday. So this thing has been an absolute home run in every possible way. And so I think it always makes sense to step to step back and study successes like that. And what really caught my attention why I wanted to do that this week was uh, Reed Hastings is out with a new book uh, that I haven't read yet, but it seems to cover a lot of what's already been up on the covered on the company over the years. But it does look interesting. But I'd highly encourage everybody to check out the interviews and the uh, media tour that he's doing for that book, because some of the comments are just fascinating. And the reason why I picked it for this week and, and wanted to compare and contrast with Disney was, he says in the book, it's impossible to know where a business like ours will be in five years. And that's a really pretty stunning thing to say. He goes on to add that we keep trying experiments. The business model will be pretty similar in five years. Can we figure out animation? Can we catch Disney and family animation? And so I think this is just a great example of a case where you need to stop and think about what you own and why you own it. And again, I want to complement everything Netflix has done. The third reason that I wanted to bring them up, which I'll circle back to in a minute, was just how well-managed this company is. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you look back at the conversation we had with Larry Cunningham a couple of weeks ago about investor relations and corporate governance, um, I would put Netflix in the very top tiny fraction of 1% of companies that does it right. And I don't think that's by any accident. I mean, this company is extremely well-managed. But given what and so again, I think you'd put Reed Hastings right up there at the very top amongst peer CEOs. And what he's saying is that even he doesn't know where the business will be in five years and that they have to keep trying experiments and they have to, you know, the business model will look kind of similar, but you have to kind of mess around and see where it goes. And I think Jeff Bezos and Amazon would tell you the exact same thing. And that's how they got Amazon Web Services. And that's just life. That's how business works. But I think it's so interesting here is I, I then went back in and laid out the numbers on Netflix. And I pulled some of my friends, particularly some of the more media savvy investors and said, you know, what do you think forward sales growth looks like over the next five years? So even though Reed Hastings doesn't know where the business will be in the next five years, does anybody, 
and by the way, it's been the top line has been growing at 30% compounded for the last five years. Where do you guys think, just throw out a couple of numbers where you think it might be, the sales growth rate might be over the next five years. What do you guys think? If you're not an expert, that's fine. You can pass or whatever, but I have my own guess. I would guess it can grow at 15. I mean, you know, the challenge okay. is they're losing all of their, you know, they're losing their licensed content and now being forced to to spend real dollars developing their own. And so there's there's that mesh. You know, they're they're far further along in terms of building the subscriber base. I mean, they've got something like 180 million subscribers. Disney's incredible in that just in nine months' time, they're already 60 million plus, and you can attribute a lot of that to the pandemic. But that's I, a great I, point. So I think 15 is a great number and let's, let's roll it because that's exactly what I had just as like kind of a base rate number to start with. Because again, you're right. So there are about 70, 75 million subscribers in the US, about 190 something total. And if you grow at 15% a year and assume there's, you know, a little bit of price in there, but not much, you know, maybe two, three, four percent a year, you probably get to maybe 325 to 350 million subscribers in the next five years. So, I mean, that's, that's a lot of growth. And then if you, if you take that 15% sales number compounded for, for those five years, you have the gross margin going up, you get to kind of, they're shooting for about a 16% operating margin. Now you say that goes up to 20, you get a net margin of free cash flow margin. They're generating a decent amount of cash over that period. So over that five years, they would probably generate something like $10 billion of cumulative free cash. So again, this is no longer a company that's actually burning cash. They're generating cash in that scenario. But I think the point that really jumps out to me is that if they generate $10 billion of cash over the next five years with this really, really impressive growth rate, that's less than 5% of the current market cap today. So five years from now, at which point the CEO himself admits that it's going to be basically impossible to know where the company stands, you're going to have more than 95% of the future value the company has to be earned five years out and beyond. The other thing that's really interesting is from an equity owner's perspective, let's say they compound growth, the sales growth rate's 15% a year. At the end of that period, they're, they're at something like a seven times EV to sales multiple. That's down from like 10 today. Um, over the last, you know, let's see, over the last decade, the EV to sales multiple has gone from about four at the beginning of the decade. It actually went under two and it's been over seven, over seven in the 10 range um, pretty consistently. Let's say it comes down to seven and with those margin profiles that we had before, at the end of that five-year period, you'd still own something trading at well north of 40 times earnings and well north of 50, 60, 70 times free cash flow. So, you know, something that's still ostensibly quite expensive. Now, look, I could absolutely argue both sides of this as to why Netflix is going to beat that if it grows 20% compounded instead of 30 or instead of 15, you know, the stock probably does phenomenally well. It could double or triple from here. If that sales number comes in way less than 15% a year, it's going to be almost impossible to make money over that period, right? And so this is the kind of analysis that I almost never see done where you're kind of reverse engineering what's baked into the stock. I mean, Michael Mobison and Al Rappaport wrote a book a long time ago called Expectations Investing. And this is exactly what I think they're talking about, which is just saying, okay, what is baked into the stock? What do I think is reasonable? And if you have a big bet on a Netflix, you're saying by definition that you're way more optimistic about where this company is going to be in 2026 and beyond. And again, I wouldn't want to bet against it. It's one of the most impressive companies I've ever seen, but I think it's just a very difficult bet. When you define free cash here, Phil, how are you getting to free cash? Are you backing off CapEx or are you considering Yeah, the- so this is operating cash less CapEx. Now, it gets a little goofy with a company like Netflix. They're actually quite 
good. And, and one thing I want to go back to and praise is their communications and investor relations effort is truly A+. plus. So they actually have all sorts of documents on the website, very clean, very plain English. They define free cash flow and it's actually operating cash, less all investing cash. I mean, it's as simple and straightforward as it could get. They have some interesting dynamics where they're actually paying more cash up front for originally produced content than from some of the licensed stuff. So, you know, there's, there's going to be a factor there, you know, maybe 1.5, 1.6 times kind of understating cash flow vis-a-vis earnings because of the, the timing differences there. And again, over long, long periods of time, it won't really make a huge difference. So again, I think as you kind of roll this forward, they're either going to keep signing up new subscribers or they're not. I mean, again, to their credit, they actually have quite a bit of an ability to kind of flex through their business model. They actually say that as they plan the year and as they look towards setting guidance, so they actually do still offer quarterly guidance. They'll actually look forward and say, here's what we think revenue will look like. And then they go backwards from there. And so they can actually target a margin on that basis and spend accordingly. So I think a lot of people would have accused them of spending like drunken sailors for the past five or 10 years. Um, But I think it's actually quite a bit more thoughtful than that. And then when you go back in and look at the way they've structured their corporate governance practices, they have an entire, they have an investor kit on the website with individual living documents that are updated in a real-time basis. I mean, it just brings tears of joys to your eye to read some some of this kind of stuff. An entire document about the long-term view of the company top investor questions where they lay out the stuff that they get pinged with a lot. And these are not softballs. You know, these are hard hitting questions about stuff that really matter. Not some sell side analyst asking, you know, how should I model the tax rate next quarter? That kind of nonsense. These are the questions you'd actually want. On a quarterly basis, they not only publish a very good letter to all their shareholders, but they do what they call an interview where all the senior executives sit down with just one sell side analyst. Again, they have to exclude the sell side completely one sell side analyst curates inbound questions and comes up with questions of his or her own. And then all the executives sit around and have a very thoughtful discussion. So it's not the usual, hey guys, great quarter, congratulations. How should I think about some obscure nonsense for my model that makes absolutely no difference to anybody? It's one of the more thoughtful, thought-provoking conversations you'll ever hear. And it's just fantastic. They've got a whole document up there about the culture. They even have a tutorial up there about the accounting or, uh, about the accounting treatment they make to your question about free cash flow. I mean, it's, it's really just truly one of the more thoughtful episodes you could ever, you could ever have on an on a investor relations and corporate governance website. So I have to give them a lot of credit for that. Where I scratch my head on, on comparing the businesses, Disney and Netflix, which gets, you know, the, the two get compared a lot and you're really comparing Disney's, you know, media properties, their broadcasting properties to a Netflix, you know, you know, with the loss of that licensed content, the amortization of their content library is going to, is a number that's going to approach, I don't know, $10 billion, let's say this year. You take a, you take Disney's content, you know, they, they come out with a, a movie like a Mulan or Black Panther. You know, they've got this content library that spans backwards decades and decades and they can bring some of that old content back. And they've got this, you know, what the, what the Disney folks call tentpole business, where, you know, the movie lends itself to merchandising. It lends itself to the creation of a TV broadcast series, you know, modeled after the movie. It lends itself to attractions at the theme parks. And they've got this extraordinary ability to monetize their, their, their media empire. And I wonder in a Netflix case, you know, if you're having to create show and series after series in a world that's, you know, very quickly, especially in this pandemic, uh, hurtling toward DTC and over the top, 
how durable is the Netflix content library would be, would be the real question I'd want to know. I mean, I, I watch very little TV, so I'm the wrong guy to ask. But when I talk to lots of people about their impressions of Netflix, you know, it's the loss of some of that content that was licensed leave me wondering how valuable is what's being created. And, you know, perhaps that amortization of intangible number is the right number. You, you build a show and it's only got a one or a two year shelf life. And it's not something that can be brought back out for the ages like a Disney would be. That, that, that's the real question in my mind. And, you know, getting to yeah. a like market cap where, you know, there've been moments this year where Netflix had a larger market cap with Disney. And I'll say on, on your sheet, the one nuance to the progression of the revenues, um, Really, it's because we're sitting here in this COVID downturn, and obviously you think about the moving parts within Disney that are just flat on their back, parks and and their experience business, <laughs> the you know the the cruise line revenues are down for the last quarter something like eighty five percent year over year. You know the cable and broadcasting they're not publishing. You know that you know they went through a long period where they, they they weren't airing live sports, which really deferred the rights of those costs to the future. So the profitability the profitability was not down as much, but you know putting putting the Fox properties media properties together with Disney, Disney would end doing oh on the order of you know maybe sixty billion dollars. Fox's revenues that they picked up in the acquisition were about half that. So when you look at the numbers on Phil's sheet here, and I'm sure John you'll put them online again, you know the incremental growth from fifty nine to sixty nine billion dollars year over year that was only a fraction of a year from the 30-ish billion dollars they picked up from Fox. And then you get this decline from 69 to a projected $65 billion this year. Well, that number ought to be closer to 80 plus, you know, pushing $90 billion today. So if you do with the Disney, what I think you need to do and suspend 2020, probably suspend 2021 from valuation, look at this enterprise as you know, it existed at year in 19 and where it would have been in two or three years. And, you know, I get to a business that'll be doing 90 to $100 billion in a couple of years in revenues. Yeah. So to and, your point, they actually do publish estimates and they're, they are at $92 billion by 2023, September year, fiscal year in 2023, and 97 by September 2024. So totally fair. Yeah, if I could jump in, uh, you know, I'm long company B as well. And, uh, you know, that, that just could, really goes to show Chris's prodigious recall on some of these things. And, um, you know, it didn't even strike me at first. I've spent a lot of time looking at the pieces of the business and I do, you know, kind of agree that's where it's headed. Um, But I want to maybe push back a little on what company A could look like thinking out a few years, because, you know, the hardest thing to think about with Netflix is what's their steady state content spend required to maintain um, their subscriber base at a more mature level. So that 15% growth over five years, you're talking about like twice the sales base down the line. But there's the chance they could, you know, kind of grow gross, pro- uh, gross profit at decently faster clip than they, than they grow um, top line. Like they could theoretically choose to grow sales, uh, grow gross, pro- uh, sorry, grow their cogs no more than about, call it, <clears throat> 20% over that time while sales double. And then the cash flow prowess of the business is like so much more. There's not that much more investment in the operating infrastructure they need. Like um, with their scale, they don't need that much more in sales. With their uh, R&D, like there's not that much you need to research and develop uh, beyond what they do already. So I'm not uh, 
owner of shares in the company, but I do think you know there's there's considerable potential to exceed uh, the the $10 billion cumulative cash flow over five years. And to the extent that they don't, it's it's a choice. Yeah. On their uh, sell-side uh, conducted quarterly call, I do find that a little bizarre. Like I love that they write, publish a detailed letter, and I love that their call cuts the nonsense of reciting a letter. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there's a perverse incentive structure there where um, in order for a sell-side analyst to maintain access and get the publicity that comes alongside uh, being the one to conduct the quarterly call, there's like a disincentive to speak negatively of the company in their own reports. And there is a disincentive to ask some of the harder questions. And at times I felt... Uh, some of those hard questions were shied away from on their calls. You know, I tend to listen. That, that to could be true. I, and I'm not, I, I agree. There's no such thing as perfect here, but I, I can't fathom how this would be worse than the typical sell side nine cheerleaders on a call, you know, round table of trying to peg next quarter's line items and the income statement. So I, I, I agree. Like, could this be better? I, yeah, of course, everything could be better. But I think if you look at the written stuff that they put out, I mean, they're not ducking the hard questions, generally speaking. I think the level of transparency and candor here is, again, in the top fraction of, of 1%. I'm with you. Like, I don't see really the need to have a pure gatekeeper in that regard. Maybe somebody internally could do it. But I mean, even the Berkshire meeting has made pretty good use, in my opinion, of having some sell-side functionality as kind of a filtering mechanism to ask questions at the annual meeting. So I think this is maybe just another example of that. And yeah, as to Chris's question, I mean, that's why I actually wanted to include Disney, not because I find them at all necessarily comparable, although they do go head-to-head to a certain degree. They're obviously very different businesses. And the the whole like Disney is X comparable or, or company Y is company X. I mean, it just gets taken way too far. The reason I brought it up was just because Reed Hastings himself called out family animation as, as one area where they are going to focus on. And I think it points out as to how difficult business really is. I mean, Disney, Pixar, they, they've been so incredibly good over so many decades at building up that own library of stuff that not only appeals to five-year-olds, but appeals to parents. I, that's not something that would strike me as easily replicated, but Netflix could very well pull it off. Who knows? I mean, most people completely laughed and and said they had no chance to produce lots of you know, good original content when they started that five or six, seven, eight years ago. And they've done pretty well at that. So I wouldn't want to write them off either. As to the level of spend required, yeah, I mean, that, that again is a, is a great question. I'm agnostic as to um, exactly how that'll play out. I mean, the one thing that does impress me, though, is just the level of flexibility they've built into the business structure. Uh, unlike a lot of so-called tech companies, and I should clarify that Reed Hastings himself says Netflix is not a tech company. It is not a media company. It's an entertainment company, which I think is actually a useful clarification. But unlike a lot of their brethren that get all lumped together, um, this company does not strike me as one that's just on the perpetual treadmill, um, unlike some others that I might highlight in a negative way if we do this again down the road. So, um, Yeah, and one of the other interesting things to consider, like they, they are relevant comparisons insofar as they're competing for entertainment budgets with families for streaming and for content sure. right now. Like uh, one of the important muscles that Netflix has been flexing is uh, pricing power. Like we give you more, but we ask you to pay more to, to justify that. <clears throat> and when Disney price Disney Plus, I kind of think that put a bit of anchoring in the average family thinking about how much they're willing to spend for Netflix 
and could be a headwind on their ability to raise prices over time. Um, so that would be consequential in thinking about how much they're capable of growing over the next five years. My guess on Netflix would be if they indeed can manage to go to the top line by, by the 15% that, that we talked about, that, that getting there will consume every dollar of capital that they produce as profit, and they'll have to continue to leverage the balance sheet to get there. And I just, just the cost of creating content is so ridiculously high. I really genuinely wonder if, if, they, if they have the platform to really generate free cash that's distributable to shareholders that can be used to repurchase shares. Um, you know, where Disney, you know, has, again, the various sources of income that kind of feed on each other. So intertwined, um, you know, if, if you get a Netflix to 50 billion, let's say, in top line revenue and, you know, doing, you know, let's say, uh, you know, five or six billion dollars in profit, every dollar of that five or six billion dollars, even five years out, is going to have to go back into building studio content. And again, I wonder what the shelf life is of the content they're creating. I mean, the upside is if they can create some series and some shows that have permanence that can, you know, lend themselves, you know, to more of a, a permanent archive like Disney has, then, then that's one thing. But, you know, the other comment I have on, on the kids' entertainment is you're up against Pixar, you're up against Marvel. You're up against um, <laughs> Star Wars. I mean, Disney has rolled up the entertainment world for kids, and you know, that's just a really formidable foe. I wonder how how you know net Netflix. Yeah, I, I I think that would be a tough road to climb to try to penetrate Disney's monopoly in that area. Just my observation. No, I I totally agree. So again, I don't I don't have a. Uh, I'm somewhat agnostic uh, uh, on both sides of this argument with both companies, but uh, I just think the the exercise is is enormously helpful. And uh, you know, again, tying it back into you know where you think the future might lie, I think the one thing that really does stand out to me in, in both regards about these companies, as you mentioned, I mean, Disney's somewhat suffering this year to, through the pandemic, whereas Netflix is arguably benefiting from the pandemic. Is that what really is going to matter to these companies does happen? beyond five years from now, where it does get very difficult to know what the business will look like, if not impossible, in Reed Hastings' words. What I think you see increasingly in a market like the one we have is short-term bets on those long-term outcomes. And you just see all of these very opinionated people making bets with real money on those long-term outcomes when they're really not thinking through the long-term outcomes. They might just be focusing more on very short-term stuff that really does get get lost in the wash. I mean, I think there's no doubt that Netflix and Disney are both incredibly successful, prosperous businesses, and they're both going to do some version of well or tremendous over the next few years. But what that really looks like and in, in actually prospering as an investor is a very different thing. I think one thing that's going to be interesting to see, and it's it's kind of down in the weeds, but you know, obviously the the movie theater had to had to push out their production schedule and their release schedule. So they are going to release Mulan here now at you know, $29.99 for the movie. And they're really going to test the ability to, to speed up even further, you know, the typical cycle of releasing the theater to where you finally have the movie, you know, kind of for free on HBO or Showtime to subscribers there. And, you know, the, the whole concept of going over the top and direct to consumer, to me, if it really proves to be successful, comes with the ability to, to expand margins. And as a contrast to Netflix, again, I'm not so sure 
that uh, Netflix possesses the ability to scale up their profitability above and beyond kind of where it's grown into here in the last year or two. A lot of upside to Disney to make this thing work properly, and they're really good at it. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Um, let's move on to Elliot with uh, your weekly topic. Sure. Yeah. This week, I want to talk about sports betting. Um, I want to talk about the industry, some of the companies involved. And, you know, uh, I'm just generally a sports junkie. So it's something I've always been interested in. I'm still a little depressed about last night's Islanders uh, heartbreaking loss. So like, heavy heart about this, you know, thinking about sports, but you know, it's still interesting. And I think a lot of people um, are coming to the conclusion that there is a big opportunity here. Clearly with the DraftKings uh, SPAC IPO, there's a degree of, I want the pure play American bet on this and I'm willing to take it price uh, be damned. So, you know, there's definitely some market interest though. There are some like uncovered opportunities out there it was really interesting to see IAC, which is a position we hold, take a meaningful stake in MGM and speak up the opportunity in iGaming and sports betting. So, you know, uh, really smart investors and smart companies are coming to this conclusion as well. Um, so really what paved the way to this, uh, this opportunity here, um, in May 2018, the Supreme Court overruled PASPA which was a bill passed in the 1970s that basically said if sports betting wasn't legal in your state, it can't be legal from here. Um, so obviously in, in uh, Nevada, it was legal. Delaware was actually the other state that squeezed in, though it was a lotto with very limited gambling. And I didn't realize until I was working on the space that you could have actually bet on some sports there. It was New Jersey who brought the legislation and was really like at the forefront of pushing to get this there. So they were one of the, they were the first state post-PASPA to go live. Um, we've now had 22 states legalize and regulate sports betting. Another 18 have legislation pending. So you could get, you know, 30 uh, total states, sorry, 40 total states um, with legalized and regulated sports betting by 2021. Um, but interestingly, across the pond in Europe, the, the markets are already fairly mature. There are a slew of companies overseas that have pretty established presence. Um, and as other states have legalized and regulated, um, the traditional Vegas uh, operators have been largely left out of it because by virtue of what worked in Vegas in a sports book, in some ways, it was a either lost leader or call it a lead gen opportunity for the casino. Sports betting brings in good people to do other things, to bet in other areas, to sit down and watch a game while ordering lots of food and drinking lots of beer, all kinds of things that generate good, good profit pools for casinos. So they never really developed know-how and never developed capabilities for what worked in a digital world. So I think that's one of the trends that I think every episode so far, we've talked something about stuff moving online from the brick and mortar world. And I think it's no different in sports betting. So as things have moved online, you have different opportunities and different kinds of products emerge as more important than others. Um, the offline world was exclusively pregame and futures bets. So futures being like, you know, I want to bet the Jets to win the Super Bowl, which is a terrible losing bet that junkies like me might make every year. Um, not going to happen. So, you know, the book makes some money, uh, but that's a futures bet. Um, and then you get, you know, mixed in prop bets. So on the Super Bowl, they would do things like coin toss, who scores the first touchdown, et cetera. But really, by and large, that was it. 
Online, you could offer all that and more. You could do things like in-play betting, offering uh, scenarios instantly with very little latency in-game to get uh, action on just about anything you'd want. Like, will the next free throw be a basket or not? Right? So, you know, there's really just a huge menu of options. And the online experience is far more interesting, engaging, um, and has different risks and opportunities for both a sports book and a better. Um, so some of the big questions to think about, you know, as you think about what a market opportunity looks like in the U.S., you know, this is different than the growth versus value debate because there are established betters, there are established uh, tendencies of people. Um, the big question here, trying to size up the opportunity, um, will Americans bet more like Brits or will we bet like Aussies? Um, so for Goldman Sachs, the typical adult in the U.K. bet $86 per year. Uh, as of 2017, in Australia, that number was $177. Um, and you know, pre-legalization, they estimate the typical American would bet $11 a year across black market opportunities. So obviously, they're relying on a degree of people have already established betting behaviors, but the willingness to bet and the opportunity to bet goes way up uh, in a legalized and regulated regime. So you know, if we bet more like like Brits, then it's a $40 billion gross gaming revenue opportunity. Um, if we bet more like Aussies, it's uh, you know almost uh, like a 70% bigger opportunity, like a $68 billion betting opportunity. Uh, sorry, market opportunity. Now, to walk down from GGR to NGR, you have to think about what a tax regime would look like. So um, what are states going to do for taxes? Will they have a different regime for brick and mortar versus online, like uh, a couple states already do? Or will it be pretty consistent in each? Um, you have a state like New Jersey that has a 15% uh, rate on net winnings versus uh, Pennsylvania, which is, I think, closer to 30%. And that has consequences for what sort of menu and bets a book is willing to offer and take. Um, so roughly speaking, taking that the, the $68 billion and $40 billion numbers, you could say about five-eighths of it would convert to an actual revenue opportunity for the industry. So that means $42 billion uh, industry opportunity at the Aussie end of the spectrum and $25 billion at the British end. And most analysts today are converging around like a $7.5 to $10 billion opportunity by 2024 based on which states they think will uh, legalize and regulate and what early betting trends look like. Um, and then you could think about ways to play it. So full disclosure, Oblong Canby. Canby is a really interesting company to me. They are a B2B operator that serves lines and risk management to sports books around the world. But really, you know, they started in Europe. They were spun off uh, and created out of Unibet, now Kindred. Um, they have done the back end for DraftKings, though at the end of 2021, they will lose that. And uh, SB Tech, which DraftKings acquired, was their foremost competitor in the B2B space for, for in, a, in a lot of ways, um, though Cy Games is also there. DraftKings acquired their foremost competitor um, and will be leaving them. But they now have a long-term contract with Penn to offer both Penn Gaming's own app and the Barstool betting app, which I think is going to be something that's interesting in the market. And they also recently won Churchill Downs, who formerly their Bet America was built on SB Tech that, that I mentioned DraftKings acquired, uh, but Canby's going to be doing the back end for them now. And obviously the market, I mean, if you sized up, if you, if you were to speak in innings terms of what inning this opportunity is, um, I kind of think, you know, and I think the industry consensus is like, we might not even be in the first inning, but let's call it the first inning. So there's really 
really a lot that's going to happen and a lot that can change. And there, there are several different ways to play it. So you have the brick and mortar companies. So like in the MGMs of the world where IAC is, um, you could think about front ends. Uh, so companies that are built on top of these B2B providers like DraftKings had been, or something like Flutter in Europe. Uh, William Hill is, is another similar. Um, they specialize in sports or online gaming. You then have media companies. A lot of people, a lot of smart people I've spoken to think media companies are, are going to be big winners in this. Um, these companies advertise mightily. Uh, the average high quality lead, I'm told, costs about $500 per conversion, which is like way up there in, in internet uh, advertising terms. Um, so, like, media companies have an interesting role to play in this. And clearly, Penn believes strongly in that, having acquired Barstool to drive their sports betting strategy. Um, and then the technology providers, like, can be. Um, and then one of the other things to think about is like, what's the cadence of uh, sports legalization and what, what's the cadence of legalization and regulation going to look like across the U.S.? And I'm thinking, you know, COVID put a real stress on budgets at the municipal level. Um, there could be a real impetus to get things done quicker than there had been before. I know my state, Connecticut, was kind of like, we know it's going to be legalized and regulated, but there's a lot of fighting over who gets the fruits of that. And so they were willing to take their time trying to figure it out between the tribes and, you know, the, the commercial enterprises fighting for an opportunity and a role to play. Um, but now there's a sense of urgency, like the budget was already tight and now they have to get this done. Like why pass up on the opportunity and have people drive a state over to place their action? Um, so, you know, it's really cool to be able to do this podcast and have a high level athlete along with us and Chris. And, uh, you know, I know you guys uh, at least appreciate sports. Um, and I was curious if uh, you have thought about sports betting, have thought about the market opportunity, any ways to play it, or have any thoughts about some of the big names in the industry. Um, and just generally the, bet the, the investing opportunity when you could almost size up some companies as like ongoing enterprises with good earnings and a huge uh, like growth opportunity on top of that, how you think about those kinds of investing opportunities. So I could turn it over to you guys after this, uh, you know, little preamble. Well, Elliot, you're nice. To, you're nice on the athlete comment. I was actually for a couple of years when I got out of school, a better blackjack player than I was athlete. So I spent a lot of time in casinos thinking I was going to, um, professionally play blackjack and really did. I mean, counting cards is, is an easy thing to do and found it just incredibly monotonous, but I had a lot of observations on how the different games paid out and, and what the odds were and where you really had an advantage. And, you know, I think blackjack is, is probably the only game in a, in a casino setting where a player can play with skill enough to have a one or two or even 3% at times advantage over the house. But that's, I don't have a lot of expertise in this area. I have really more questions than I have Insight. My my first question would be: Given the size of the market that you just laid out, if you know we look more like the UK and or maybe even somewhere less of the UK, you know, if we're going to wind up being a forty billion dollar total addressable market, how much of that's already in these stocks? I mean, as you were talking, I just pulled up the caps of Flutter, which has FanDuel, Penn, uh, and DraftKings, and combined, it looks like there are already about forty billion dollars in revenues and. I've looked at William Hill and yeah, you, to me, you're right. It's mature business. Do you think this industry, so I'm asking a couple of questions in one, but do you think this industry's margin structure winds up looking like a, a mature William Hill with a mid twenties EBITDA margin and a kind of a net profit margin of around 10? Because if that's the case, the question really is, 
how much of the, the the market as it opens up and more states approve gambling is already in the names when these stocks have gone just straight up here in the last few months. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that it took sports stopping during COVID for people to start appreciating the the extent of the opportunity here. Um, William Hill had been languishing for a long time until the last few months. I think you have to distinguish between the front ends and some of the technology providers, and you have to have an opinion on a couple things. First is, you know, as the market matures, how consolidated will the uh, customer-facing platforms be? So, like, will basically three platforms have 80% market share and, you know, everyone else is fighting for 20%? Or will it be a pretty open market? And the U.S. is unique insofar as, you know, typically in the European countries, each country has their own regulatory regime, but the U.S., as every state with their own uh, ability to legalize and regulate and have their own tax structure. Beyond that, we have the Wire Act. So you can't pool bets across state lines even. So it's really hard to operate at scale across the whole country. Um, so one key question to figure out in, in thinking about an industry structure is will the Wire Act inevitably be repealed? Um, for front ends, like I'm operating under the assumption that it'll be pretty similar uh, to William Hill in in that sense. The LTVs of customers and the churn are pretty. I, my my sense is that they're pretty similar so far between European betters and U.S. betters. Um, that the average customer life is somewhere around two and a half to three years. You definitely have to keep investing in S and M. Um, DraftKings had some really ambitious numbers with uh, average lifespans five to seven years and thinking they could scale S&M beyond even the most uh, robust Aussie uh, betting platforms. So, you know, that's one of the things I think about. The front end isn't necessarily as good a business as um, some of the technology providers. So that's part of what brought me to Canby. Um, now, in getting to think about a TAM for the technology provider, so not only do you have to think about industry concentration, you have to think about um, which of the providers will want to be vertical and inevitably be, be vertical. So like DraftKings now uh, bought a technology platform and they want to have no one they rely on for uh, a back end. And then you also, uh, so so that's question number one. And number two is, you know, what's a take rate going to look like? What's a take rate of NGR uh, at the end of the day? So in Europe early on, Canby had been operating in the mid-teens, but um, with some of these larger US operators, they're closer to like a 10% range. Um, so, you know, you take that really large TAM, you shrink it down by uh, focusing on only those that are going to be uh, relying on a backend and then say, you know, it's 10% of what those people could capture. But yeah, I mean, I still think there's a considerable opportunity there. Like Canby's incremental margins are upwards on an EBITDA basis. Their incremental margin is uh, decently above 40% right now. Um, so it's it's a really like fixed cost uh, heavy business. Their incremental EBITDA margin right now is like closer to 50%. So it, it's a large fixed cost business that you can spread the cost over a whole lot of partners. You make improvements for one partner, those improvements spread to all others. Um, that's one of the things I like about it. So I think it really depends on how you want to think about it and where and how you want to play it. Um, going back to Disney before, Disney's got a role to play too, right? Media companies are looked upon not just for like, uh, you know, ESPN uh, uh, plus you you could get sports betting advice so it could drive subscriptions. And there's an opportunity for uh, these advertisers to come in with a whole lot of dollars um, and spend pretty aggressively 
in a channel where they know there's engagement with a potential audience. So, you know, I know that's not a, a direct answer, but it, it really depends on where you want to focus and how you want to like recalibrate the TAM for what's accessible to that specific company's opportunity. Disney actually, Disney actually owns a little bit of DraftKings. It's interesting to see kind of who the big original owners were between the media companies and even where the conflict, just stunning to me, you even had some team owners that, that own some shares of a couple of the, the daily fantasy sports companies um, prior to them going public. You know, my, my, the, the other question, you, you mentioned, Elliot, two and a half to three year kind of a customer life and the churn. How important and how expensive is customer acquisition cost? Um, you know, in, 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 the, in the casino world, you know, these guys know who the whales are and they'll spend incredible sums, but they're lifetime customers. You know, they'll put them on a plane from Shanghai and bring them to Las Vegas. If you're spending 250, 300 bucks for a customer that's going to have a yearly average bet of 50 bucks, let's say, where are you giving away too much up front if you're going to lose the majority of your customers on the back end? Yeah, no, that's one of the things that's kind of put me off from the front ends to an extent. Um, the high quality leads from one of the uh, affiliate sites is $500. One of the interesting setups in the industry is uh, Yahoo's agreement with the Bet MGM GVC joint venture. So uh, MGM's working with GVC as their technology provider here and really kind of a white labeled provider. Um, and they're paying Yahoo's getting paid fifty dollars per lead. Typical Verizon Yahoo fashion, coming in at you know a fraction of where the industry is, uh, giving up the economics for little or nothing. And you know, I think in the land grab phase, like that five hundred dollar affiliate number is is somewhat inflated because there's just a lot to benefit from showing a robust top line in terms of your uh, market prowess. But at the same time, you know, I, I do think there's going to be a degree of inherent uh, churn where um, the average better is going to lose money. And once you spend your budget on a given platform, you might like that your payment credentials are there, but you'll say, you know what, these guys are giving a promotion over there at a different company. And, you know, I was unlucky on this one. Maybe I'll be luckier on the new space. Um, so that's really the kind of behavior that drives churn. Um, and part of why I do think there's a role to play for more than a few players in the industry. But yeah, you know, that's one of the things I really am a little put off by with DraftKings. And I think they've been very, uh, maybe slightly dishonest about how they've explained uh, their customer economics. And it's why I'm hopeful that Disney uses their DraftKings shares as an opportunity to generate some liquidity in a time where, you know, um, cash is a little tighter than normal. It's amazing to me when you mentioned the the take rate at William Hill dropping from mid-teens to 10 on the inception of this new competition from the online guys, the DraftKings and the FanDuel's flutters, how much of a barrier exists to the first movers in the online space? I mean, what, you know, what, what's, what's to say five, 10 years out, you know, take rates aren't half and then half again uh, of where they are here at the outset. Yeah, well, so I want to be clear. Uh, it, the take rate was about Canby and Canby's uh, what they're will, what they're capable of asking from the really large platforms. Um, so, thinking a level higher, I think what you're suggesting is that the um, actual margin or the hold that the sports book is able to earn uh, compresses over time uh, once you're past the mature phase. And you know, the U.S. is generating a lower margin than European books uh, in that sense. 
And there are some people whose long-term vision is to drive way more volume at a much, much lower, vo- uh, much, much lower margin. Um, but it's unclear whether you know, they'll be able to fulfill the technology and needed to do that and generate enough liquidity. Uh, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. The, similar to what we were talking about with uh, trading uh, commissions going to zero. Like if, which one is the push or pull in getting there? Um, but then, you know, uh, inevitably, um, there's a certain degree to which, uh, there's inertia from the existing contracts. So the new contracts that are being signed are pretty long-term in nature. And I do think that the technology providers at a certain scale will have a little bit more leverage over the books themselves because they're chasing a moving target. So the, the farther the industry gets toward maturity, and the more investment that's already gone into building a backend, the harder it'll be for someone to start from scratch to either buy or build. There are just very few assets to buy. That's part of why DraftKings paid so much for a really subpar asset in SB Tech. But yeah, you know, the, the, those are all tough questions. And, and it's part of the challenge in the whole industry, thinking about where, where it goes, how it goes, and what the path to getting there looks like. It's it's one of the things that fascinates me with this so, so much too, um, just all the game theory that's involved. So you had one other part of the question that I wanted to answer, and I'm blanking. What was the what was the very first part? Well, I, I was really curious about about you know the the competitiveness and and be, the the first mover advantage of. Oh yeah, yeah. Advantage. So there's a really good story about that because I think in Europe uh, the consensus had been that the industry had reached a degree of maturity. And there were the established players who everyone was uh, thinking had their had their role to play, and these young upstarts, Bet three sixty five, came in, um, and they were looked upon, you know, frowned upon by the industry. I'm, I'm speaking secondhand off of stories that people have told me and what I've read, um, but Bet three sixty five is kind of like the elephant in the room globally, though they've been a little slow and maybe methodical in pursuing the U.S. market. Um, so they came in what like maybe you call it like the fifth inning of the European opportunity, and they became the beast of it all. Um, so I do think there's uh, some degree of first mover advantage because those who are early are still doing pretty well in Europe. But I, at the same time, I don't think you need to be a first mover to win long term. And I think there's opportunity for people who are getting uh, their structure wrong now to kind of course correct, as you see with Churchill Downs changing their backend partner. Uh, as you see with IAC kind of pushing uh, MGM a little more forcefully to think about the digital opportunity and make it better because their offering is really, really subpar so far. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely not game over. There's some first mover advantage, but I think it's, it's often overstated as a barrier to entry, um, more so than um, it, it, it is an actual business advantage too. Particularly if they don't have pricing power, which I can't see how they would. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, you know, especially the more sophisticated betters could shop around uh, and you know have an account at multiple platforms and just take the action where their bet is uh, going to be cheapest. Right. They're they're they're. Kind of like what you said with blackjack, you could engineer about a 3% edge. In the sports betting world, you could, if you're incredibly skilled and you have a good algorithm that you're working with, you could generate, you know, one and a half to 3% edge yourself. Um, so you're going to be like very sensitive to the pricing of lines. And there's a degree of inertia across platforms in where lines go, especially when a lot of the books are kind of lazy 
and unsophisticated, and they really only want to have a sports book to check a box to round out other uh, casino options, um, they'll simply just scrape lines. And where they lose is in risk management. So they're willing to lose to these more sophisticated bettors. The best of the platforms, though, are going to be a little different, and they're going to be a little more sophisticated, and they're going to try to protect their margin. But yeah, there's there's only so much difference that you could offer in price. Like A lot of that's going to be commoditized in, in that sense. Totally think so. Phil, you want to jump in at all? I don't have a whole lot to add that would be all that insightful. I mean, like Chris, I counted cards in my early 20s and kind of got that out of my system and haven't had a whole lot of thoughts or interaction with this world since then. I mean, I think it's obvious that it'll grow. I think just like, um, at least in large parts of the world, the you know legalization or uh, regulation of alcohol and tobacco and marijuana and gambling, all that kind of stuff. I mean, people have had an interest in doing that for many, many years, to say the least. And I think that'll continue here. But I think just like all those other industries, um, because it's such an obviously lucrative area to go after, I think the competition is just very likely to be vicious for some number of years until there's some sort of shakeout. Um, so I'm certainly the last one to offer any insights as to as to how that'll play. It's just not an area that I've spent much time looking at it. I mean, it'd be fascinating to see how it plays out. I mean, anecdotally, I wonder how many people are going to change their habits right away. And I, uh, you know, to Chris's point, I, I, it's just not clear to me which, um, which specific areas or which specific companies will emerge as relative winners, even though it seems pretty obvious that the whole thing's going to take off to a large degree. Elliot, do we know anything about kind of why people do sports betting? Is it to make money or is it to kind of uh, have more fun while watching uh, an, an event or a game? Yeah, so that's a good question. Because one of the funny things I've encountered in this is there's uh, what they call the American and the European perspective on what the answer to that question is. And I think it's kind of like the typical American attitude. Uh, U.S. bettors tend to think they have an edge and want to win. And it's about making money. Um, The European perspective is more along the lines of this is uh, good, fun, structured entertainment that exists parallel to something people really enjoy to kind of supplement how they engage with sports. And so it's led to some culture, cultural rifts as some European companies have come here and been a little more aggressive with risk management than the Vegas uh, legacy industry has been used to. But, you know, I, I, I kind of shake out like, I, I mean, I tend to love nuance in general. I, I, I hope and I think it's a little of both, right? It's, it's fun. It makes the game more interesting. It's social. And um, if you're good at it, you really truly can have an edge, um, a small edge, but an edge. I'd put, I'd put the group, John, in three buckets. There's the entertainment value crowd that Elliot talked about. My grandmother who played slot machines uh, for years and years and years, you know, she played in Colorado and the, the casinos in Blackhawk and Central City would send her a bus and bring her up the hill because they knew she was good for 8% of every dollar on average over a statistically large number of samples. I mean, she, she, she was good to the house. You have addicts in the sports betting world that, you know, the guys that would use the bookie at the golf club and get way up and get way behind, but wind up with the take being so high, it's really hard to make money over time. And then to Elliot's point, you have pros. I've got a friend of mine 
who thrived on the DraftKings and FanDuel platforms and really made a good living. He did that professionally. He had a real job, was doing it on the side and realized he could make a hell of a lot more money, you know, playing those games in various sports, especially. And, and I won't tell you which sports he was playing, but they cracked down and they turned the screws and they made it a little bit more difficult. Obviously the pandemic changed all that with, with sports going away for a few months. But in the last couple of years, he had told me he had transitioned his game to the real casinos where the lines in, and even in the games where he would do an inordinate amount of research and really, you know, had a, a, a genuine advantage over even the house. Uh, it's just that much different of a game and that much tougher. But, you know, to the earlier point, he, he would move his business knowing where the line was the most attractive. I think the, the, the durability of anybody that's going to do this for more than the two and a half to three year churn that Elliot mentioned, you know, the guys that are real pros at this are, are going to chase the dollar. And to me, if, if those are the real genuine customers um, that, that these guys are interested in, you know, to, to Phil's point, you know, where does this thing become so price competitive that it just gets that hard to, for the for the group collectively to make money? I, I'd, I'd wonder. I guess the reason I ask is, um, you know, for people who really want to make money, why not just play the stock market? And, you know, the, <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the, the apps uh, that where you can trade stocks are just getting kind of gamified to the point where it feels similar. And uh, I would think the odds would be better for most people. Yeah, look no further than Dave Portnoy, right? I mean, he went from having been deep in the weeds on building his sports book on Canby's platform to um, DTTG or whatever it is, and you know, hawking uh, his his trades daily. Uh, but you know, I think there's something to be said about um, an industry structure geared towards. I don't know, hopefully uh, preventing that sort of gamification from getting too rampant in the stock market and, you know, maybe lessons learned from the dot-com bubble and sports being like, you know, they're, they're kind of checking volumes. Uh, there's a regulatory regime in place in some of the European countries. That's part of why these stocks had been so cheap heading into the U.S. legalization cycle. Um, UK had clamped down with both a higher tax rate and they created kind of a KYC type uh, obligation on the books to figure out if there were certain customers, profile certain customers who are losing too much money to try to prevent that sort of behavior. Um, in the stock market, you lose a whole lot more, a whole lot faster than sports if you're if you're playing it from a game angle. Um, and you don't get the joy of watching like high quality athletes at the, alongside uh, your your skin in the game, your your exposure. So it's one. It is one of those weird things, though. You know, um, I do it from time to time, but totally for fun, and I don't expect to win. I usually bet on my really, really junky teams. And if you know me as an Islanders, Jets, Mets fan, they're pretty bad. Um, so that's a losing proposition, but it's fun and interesting from time to time to keep the volumes very, very small. Um, so I can, I can see both sides. I would observe on that point to the UK regulation. The UK is a nanny state, and you know, with most of our states bankrupt, as soon as they as soon as they legalize sports betting and online gambling, and they generate that revenue stream, I don't see the U.S. being anywhere near the the, the regulatory risk that you've got in Europe. Uh, you know, they're they're too dependent on the revenues. Whether it was the tobacco revenues from the lawsuits, or 
in any of the spigots that get open. Um, I, I don't see that the the state of Missouri here is going to be overly concerned once they've legalized on the handful of folks that take it too far and lose all their money. Yeah, I tend to agree. I feel like if you're uh, inclined to legalize and regulate, you're not going to wield the hammer too heavily, but there will be some states who just never uh, get there, um, is how I think of that. And those states are the ones who, you know, had it been uh, federally, they they and their constituencies would be pushing for something a little more aggressive, but I just don't think it's going to happen. On the on the regulatory front, Elliot, are, off the top of your head, are there any money laundering, AML type issues in the in the online betting world? Yeah, in fact, the company that DraftKings purchased was, um, you know, really heavily scrutinized, and the deal almost broke down before the acquisition cleared. Um, and the the problem is that they were involved in black and gray markets. Um, they had been involved in what some suspected was a way to launder money out of Iran into Turkey and then into Europe with like three-way bets where their design placed both sides and the cost is what they'd lose in the, you know, in this, in the spread across it. Um, so there's some quirky things that have gone on. I was surprised to see DraftKings bite for the whole thing because when the deal broke off originally, they were going to kind of siphon off the black and gray market operations and make it a pure asset purchase of the technology side of things. And, you know, something changed in DraftKings where they decided, okay, I'll be damned. We're going to pay above what we were rumored to have been paying before and buy the whole thing. Um, And I think there's something a little off uh, with how that all played out. Um, But yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's like which kind of money laundering is there? Um, in the U.S., you know, as I mentioned that stat, there's $11 bet per U.S. adult anyway right now, and that's all black market. So one way or another, that's a kind of uh, money that's unclean in that sense. So by legalizing and regulating, you take that black market and make it clean. But then there could be creative ways for someone with um, bad intentions to kind of use uh, bets to move money in weird, weird ways. Um, though I think they're, uh, the more sophisticated companies are good at, at recognizing screwy behavior and precluding it from, from actually getting in play. Interesting. Thanks. Okay. Well, I guess uh, we'll go to Chris for your weekly topic. Sure. I, I didn't give a lot of time to any particular topic. And so I, I thought what I would do is kind of rehash... Uh, pull out of the recycling bin, John. The 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 topic that I talked about in Zurich last a year ago, June, at, at your get together, I talked about the what I called the imperative of no, which to me are really just all the reasons in the investment process where you get to a red flag or you get to a roadblock and you simply stop. And you know, I think you know we've talked about governance and various other issues here in the last few weeks on the podcast. I mean, this this is one that when you boil down the reasons that we stop business understandability, business quality, and then price being kind of the last thing that, that we all collectively have talked about that we look at, I think we can take this topic as a very general topic and talk about it in, you know, numerous sessions, you know, in the weeks prospectively, there's just a lot of moving parts and there are a lot of reasons why you'd, you'd start and stop the investment process. So the understandability to me is always 
is always kind of the first thing that we go to. And, you know, I've got, I've got industries and businesses that I just don't want to own, you know, leverage at the outset is something, you know, we're always, is a nevma to us, which is an immediate stop. You know, I've had businesses that I've owned in industries like uh, private education. We've owned Apollo Group a couple of times when they were growing and thriving. And we saw a regulatory risk coming and, and backed away. And when the environment became, when we became incapable of understanding where the regulatory threat was headed, we kind of baked our, you know, banked our profits and, and moved on. And in the subsequent years, the thing just imploded. Uh, they were regulated to death. They got in big trouble for paying admissions bonuses. Uh, and ultimately, Apollo, which wound up being the biggest school in the country by enrollment, uh, which was incredible. It's the University of Phoenix and a couple other brands. Uh, they, they got huge. And kind of in the wake of, of the regulatory burden, rolled off to where the thing was actually going to fail in a private equity firm that was a good friend of President Obama's wound up buying it for pennies on the dollar. And I wouldn't even be surprised. I mean, I, I remember Apollo, and I'm going off on a tangent already, but I mean, they, they had like a $15 billion market cap at the peak and four or 500,000 students. And I know, uh, you know revenues got up to maybe five or $6 billion. They were really profitable, generating kind of 15% profit margins. And I want to say the whole thing got bought out for a few hundred million dollars um, just a couple, three years ago. It was stunning. Anyhow, you know, an, an industry, I think, is a great example of understandability. To me, uh, pharmaceuticals, be they branded pharma, big pharma, uh, generics, biotech, you know, it's a world that in my 30 years of investing, where I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of research, have owned a number of companies meaningfully, Shearing Plow, Merck, Mylan. Uh, we even owned some Sanofi. I owned a biotech that wound up being a disaster for us. But in, in large part, wound up making a lot of money and spended, spent countless research hours reading through um, you know, various studies, clinical trials, phase twos, phase threes, trying to figure out what was next. And at the end of the day, realized, you know, circle of competence being so important uh, that I really didn't know what I was doing. And for a lot of reasons, got lucky in, in industries that, because we had some price discipline, wound up buying some things when there were issues and trouble and making money. But, you know, after 30 years of investing, you know, spent 26, 27 years thriving and finally realized this is just too hard. And, you know, there, there, there are companies that, that we've owned, that we've observed. I think a lot of success comes down to success in the R&D pipeline. And for a lay investor, for an outside investor with no medical or scientific background, you know, to think that I could read uh, a phase three trial and look at, at, at efficacy studies and safety profiles and try to figure out what's going to happen next is too hard. And I'm not even sure the managements of the companies that run some of the big pharma companies uh, really have a handle. I mean, you just saw a recent breast cancer study, uh, you know, deep into a phase three at Pfizer uh, kind of blow up and go sideways. So, you know, you look at, you look at a company like Pfizer who, had Lipitor, which, you know, when, when it was on patent, was the, grew to be the biggest drug in the world. It did something like $150 billion in lifetime revenues. Well, you know, Lipitor was acquired uh, via the Warner-Lambert acquisition. And, you know, they probably had, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years of, pa of patent protection. 
Warner Lambert did not have the distribution sales force that Pfizer had in place. So it was a great deal. But I don't think when Pfizer bought it, they knew it was going to be as big as it was. And at its peak, it was something like a quarter of Pfizer's revenues and probably half of their profitability. And I remember early on, so right, right about the time we were, we were starting the firm, you know, our kind of original anchor family client uh, had a number of branded drug companies in the portfolio that they'd owned for a long time. In fact, we still have a few shares of Merck that have like a two cent cost basis. But, you know, sharing, I remember the whole group in the late 90s had had gone through this period where there was just huge success in uh, a handful of big drugs. Uh, The group had earned, you know, very high 30, 40% returns on capital for a long time. Revenues had clipped along at high single-digit growth rates. And when the entire overall stock market, last week we talked about kind of the comparisons between 1999 and today. Well, you know, in 98, really the big blue chips peaked. I mean, that was when Coca-Cola traded at 45 or 50 times earnings and Mr. Buffett bought Gen Ray and diversified the portfolio and was able to shrink the Coke position uh, simply by, you know, baking in a big bond portfolio into the mix. Well, the, the big pharma companies, Merck and Pfizer and J&J, Shearing Plow all traded at 40, 45 times earnings. And, you know, the multiple on the S&P 500 was, you know, getting into the 30s. And so, you know, that history of 15 years of just unbridled success was baked into the prices. And you looked at a shearing plow. Claritin was their, their, their biggest drug. And Claritin, I think at that point was, at that point, the biggest drug in the history of pharma. They were doing probably $3 billion in sales in Claritin. And... In 1999, I'm going to say, the drug was going to go off patent protection. The FDA had actually tried to accelerate the, the end of their patent life. Well, Claritin was, you know, on the order of a third of Shearing Plow's revenues. It was almost all the profits, three quarters of the profits. And you knew that drug was going away. You knew that revenues were going to drop. You know, the price was going to drop to 10 cents on the dollar. You know, units would continue to grow. You were going to get you were going to get generic competition. Hatch-Waxman had been passed in 1984, which made it a lot easier for the, the generics to get into the marketplace. And it traded at 45 times and the stock just got crushed. You know, you look at, at Pfizer, and I don't know, with all the spinoffs over the last few years, you know, Pfizer was so expensive in, in 98, 99, that, that the stock price is below where it was 20 years ago. Again, I'm not sure where you'd go with, with put, putting the, the spinoff back in place. You look... More modernly, I mean, we you, you just had the closure of the AbbVie Allergan deal. I mean, Allergan reminded me a little bit of Valiant in that 100% of their profitability was below the line. And you had this extraordinary history of write-offs and write-downs. It was really profound in, in, in the Valiant case. But, you know, you go back and look at Allergan's income statement and the extraordinary items, uh, you know, ignoring acquisition expenses, yet... You know, they had rolled up a lot of their business. They had bought Actavis, I think. You know, they bought a bunch of things. Well, you know, Botox was flatlining. They were losing Restasis, their eye drug. Uh, and then you take AbbVie, which was spun out from Abbott a bunch of years ago. You know, it, it, Pfizer, in fact, had an offer to buy them that got overturned by the Obama administration for the tax inversions. You guys remember those? Well, AbbVie came along and merged with Allergan. AbbVie had their own problems. They we're, we're in the process of losing the rheumatoid arthritis drug, uh, which 
you know, Humira, which was over $100 billion, let's call it $110 or $120 billion lifetime drug. It was very similar to Claritin. It was, it was even bigger relative to the business. It was probably two-thirds of, of AbbVie's business. It was over 100% of their profits, and it was going away. So you took a marginal business, marginal business, put them together. And, you know, if we had owned Pfizer at the point where they picked up Warner Lambert, and, you know, at the point the stock was cheap, you would have made a bunch of money. Merck here in the last you know, 20 years is probably another one. I, I suppose it may have made some money, but if you look at the all-time high price back in the late 90s, early 2000s, Merck today, you know, is below where it was. Now, we picked up a bunch of Merck when they had their Vioxx ordeal, their uh, COX-2 inhibitor problem, uh, which had a bad cardiac profile after it had been released. They pulled it off the marketplace. The stock got absolutely crushed, spent a whole bunch of time doing a bunch of work on it and got it right and made a bunch of money. It's just and I could go on and on. It's 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 a place where, you know, we finally decided our circle of competence, my circle of competence as an investor is far more narrow than I thought it was 20 years ago and 30 years ago. And I presume, you know, I, I, I presume I think I know a lot more now than I think I know. And I, you know, presume when I reflect back 10 years from now that that I knew a lot less in the year 2020 than I know in the year 2030. There's, there's the difference between cumulative knowledge and wisdom. And, you know, I think maybe you get wiser as time goes on. So, you know, I thought I'd start with that and open it up. If you guys have examples of where, and maybe today we just talk about business understandability or industry understandability and examples that you've come across to where you simply say, this just goes in the too hard pile. I'm never going to get there. Uh, I think we've gotten better at it over the years, and I'm sure you guys have similar experiences. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I might put uh, the sports betting industry, you know, all the considerations there might qualify that that way for me. Certainly pharmaceuticals and biotech, I've, I've never even tried. Oil and gas is a, an industry where I learned, uh, thankfully, not too much the hard way, but with some firsthand experience that it's just not, uh, not one for me. And like you said, I think uh, you're probably doing it wrong if you're not getting more humble the older you get as opposed to more arrogant or more sure of yourself. I think it's pretty normal for, you know, bright 20 something year olds to discover this business and think they've got the world by the tail and it's almost always wrong. So you need to be constantly learning and expanding what you know, but that tends to create more awareness of how little you actually do know if you're, if you're being intellectually honest about it. So it's, that's certainly been my experience. And yeah, I think it's just, the number one thing that I try to do right away as a filter is, can I understand this business and the industry it operates in? And if there's just no hope, I, you know, I, I just quit right there. I mean, the, the problem with that for me has been that occasionally I will rule out some things that I actually could understand uh, because they looked at a high level to be beyond me. But you'd rather miss some opportunities that way than plunge off the cliff, you know, into an area where you just have no business being. Yeah, no, I, I agree with a lot of that. Obviously, I don't agree that uh, sports betting might be too hard, but um, to an extent, I think I, you know, some of it is, and I honed in on an area that I appreciate. Uh, a couple of areas that I tend to stay away from, though, I, you know, I try not to have blanket rules that I'll never go near them. But uh, the auto sector, most of semiconductor space has been uh, really hard for me to tap into. Um, I have a hard time with complex industrials and conglomerates, um, you know, really just have a very challenging time understanding strategy and, and, and the moving pieces in there. 
Um, stay away from certain markets. So anything that's over reliant on China in particular, I view, you know, in, in terms of like understandability, I really just don't understand the motives and uh, uh, of the government there and, and whether they'll let a, American investors ever make money. Uh, and by make money, I mean, take money out. Um, so like stocks could go up a lot, but you might not have a business long-term that, that could do so. Um, had one really bad experience there in my formative years that I would, you know, in the in the wind space that I really thought I had something good that that went terribly awry. So so that's like if if a thesis is too over reliant on growth coming from there, I'll I'll stay away entirely. Um, those are a few that come to the top of my mind right away. But you know, uh, the flip side of that is like one of the things I do flock to. I, I like change and I like uncertainty on that vector. So like. Um, it doesn't mean that it's easy to understand per se, but um, when the pricing, when the valuation is fair enough, uh, I think you could kind of capitalize on uncertainty. Um, so just throw that out there as, as like an added layer uh, to, to the thinking on this level. Yeah, you know, there's one in, in my case, as I sit here and think about it, that's, you know, it's just an industry I've long avoided. And, and today you've got, you know, countless value investors in charter well, I've never wanted to own a cable business. I grew up in Colorado and kind of watched John Malone from the early days. And my observation there had been, well, these guys have all gotten really rich by selling assets to each other. And I could never understand. It was really the first industry that used EBITDA as a measure of profitability. And I could never understand how you got to kind of free cash profitability. And, and I'm not sure the industry really ever did. I mean, it was a place where they would always tell you every year when you listen to the quarterly calls, you know, our CapEx is behind us. You know, we've we've got our assets in the ground and now we're just going to generate a lot of cash. Well, that CapEx never ended. It was a never-ending stream of money going out the door. And so here in the last, you know, 10 years, five years, you've had all the cord cutting and, you know, cable to me was easy, but all of a sudden, you know, Charter has reconfigured itself and really the value of the business is the pipe into the house that's not bringing in entertainment, but it's bringing in high-speed bandwidth, which kind of is the follow-on to the conversation last week from having laid all the dark fi- dark fiber and so you know, I scratch my head and wonder if that 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 for long having put cable in in the too hard too ununderstandable uh pile if you know sometimes you don't miss the forest for the trees yeah i find when you enter yourself into situations like that and full disclosure I, I i have a position in comcast but uh you know I, I think they they do spit off a lot of cash but more high level like when you enter situations where you're not going to trust it you're never going to have conviction behind it and if your uh stock price goes down before it goes up you're going to question yourself and what you're doing and so it's hard to see it through so like you inherently have to avoid those kinds of situations so like the areas that i tend to stay away from I've either been burnt or, or fear that when things go wrong, I don't have the um, staying power for whatever reason it may be to, to see it through. And I think that's, that's you know, important. So you're not missing. I, the market's big enough, right? We could turn over enough rocks. We get enough uh, no-called strikes. Um, could sit there waiting all day. I mean, kind of an infinite sequence of opportunities uh, rule number one, I think, is survive, right? Uh, or don't lose money. Uh, one and the same in a lot of ways. Um, so avoiding those kinds of areas, even if you feel like you might be missing something, is, is extremely important and helpful. And it's hard as a lay investor as well. You know, when you're not running the business, you haven't spent an entire career in an industry. And I'm not even sure that that a lot of the really good sell-side analysts on Wall Street really thoroughly 
you know, understand the business having not been operators inside the company. But a lot of capital allocation boils down to luck. Uh, I think a lot of it understands knowing what you own. You know, I think to me, maybe the greatest act of capital allocation, and you'd scratch your head and, and, and it wouldn't be intuitive, but I think perhaps the greatest transaction ever made was when Steve Case sold AOL to Jerry Levin at Time Warner. I mean, you know, AOL was there in the early days of the internet. They had signed up everybody for their online news. Everybody had a dot AOL, you know, at AOL email address. And there wasn't much to the business. You know, they didn't have the durability of what Google was going to eventually bring to the party and, and all, all the various other new tech players. And they wound up taking a real business in Time Warner with real assets and real durable cash flows and profitability. And I remember AOL, it wasn't a 50-50 merger. I mean, you know, Time Warner brought something like 80 or 90% of the cash flow and the profitability and the assets to the party and wound up getting a majority interest in the business. It was one of the best and also one of the worst transactions. You know, we last week we talked about the dark fiber and, and the fiber optic guys when you know, Williams Communications was building out their network. Well, you had Global Crossing, and I'll and I'll I'll not forget this one because it was another Colorado connection. But you know, Quest uh, wound up wound up merging and 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 being acquired by US West. So you know, Joe Naccio was one of the early pioneers in in communications and was there with Quest laying their own their own pipe with rights of way. And wound up at the end of that game, there was not a plausible chance that you were ever going to generate a dollar of free cash on all of that enormous CapEx that had been spent. And they convinced Saul Trujillo and U.S. West to buy the business. And that was another of those transactions that what were you thinking when you bought that business? And as an outside investor, you know, if you, if you believe the hype of dark fiber or you believe the hype of the internet, but if under the surface you don't have one of the surviving entities, how do you make it work? And, you know, as a, as a generalist investor, you know, sometimes you just have to say, again, put it in the too hard pile. I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to go near that kind of stuff. And, you know, you, you know it, obviously if you're Saul Trujillo at US West or you're Jerry Levin at Time Warner, they didn't understand it either. And they gave away their businesses. And those were, again, two of the most egregious examples of capital mistakes that you could have made. And, you know, part of that comes from the power of being a bigger enterprise and being a bigger CEO, but boy, they did not know what they were getting when they made those two acquisitions and you know, places that we avoided, but you know, probably places where they should have avoided it too. I'm not sure if this uh, fits the topic. Um, you know, I have plenty of uh, things that are outside my circle of competence, uh, probably much more than you guys. Uh, but I also maybe look at this imperative of no uh, along a, totally different vector, which is valuation. And for me, let's say anything that, that's trading at more than 10 times revenue is just a, simply a no, because I don't feel like I can ever come to the confidence about the future of, of a business that has to grow into its valuation that much. So I kind of t- tend to cut off uh, you know, everything that's, uh, that's a real high flyer, obviously missing a lot of... Uh, things that go on to greatness, but also kind of avoiding uh, some things that turn out not to be as expected. Yeah, yeah, that's price. And that, that's one of the legs of the stool. And, and as I've said before, we, we kind of get to price last. You know, I didn't, get, I didn't get into business quality today. And that's something that's just a part of any of our ongoing conversations and even our conversations on the podcast here. But 
you know, capital structure of a business, the, the measurable and durable profitability of a business, how it can change over time. You know, we could have, you know, I think we could do four or five sessions on accounting integrity and some of the red flags that you get uh, that are just simply, you know, footnote issues and accounting issues. Measurement of management quality can be its own conversation. Uh, return on incremental invested capital is is an absolute go-to. Um, so, you know, understanding the business, understanding the industry, you know, really drilling down to getting whether business quality is there, whether it's durable, but then finally paying the price. And yeah, I don't know. I'm with you, John. I, you know, you know, when you get to price, you know, I, I tend to revenues, unless you really understand, you know, that you're in the early innings of a very long growth curve. You know, there are very few industries and businesses that that will develop the durable margin structure to justify a 10x price, unless you're a very young early company. Um, uh, and, I'll throw it back out. You Visa or Mastercard, right? So unless you are young or you have an extremely amazing margin structure, yeah. And even there, um, you know, those are still two businesses where there's still a lot of cash transactions that are done globally. I think the runways there are very long. But you take those two businesses at their highs here recently, and you've got 50% after-tax profit margins, which is just incredible. I've never seen better businesses in my life. But are they worth 50 times earnings on a 50% after-tax margin as businesses that are much bigger than they were 10 years ago? Um, So, yeah, but price is always the final is always the final measure. But those are two businesses where you know they're they're very easy to understand you know, understand where they have the durable competitive advantage against anybody else in their fields. Uh, business quality is clearly there. They do wonderful things with capital. And you know, I, I get to the very last measure and that's price. And, you know, it's been a huge mistake of mine to be anchored in traditional valuation yardsticks with those two businesses because I've never bought them. And, you know, when they were trading in the low 20s to earnings and you knew that the growth curve of their franchises were incredibly long. You know, the two businesses that I mistakenly never bought them in, you know, they're two of the most expensive mistakes in my career because we've spent a lot of time researching them and understanding, you know, kind of the, the drilling down to the fundamentals and how they work. And to John's point on price, I've never gotten there. So, you know, I hope, you know, I'm learning at least that when you find a business that can grow, detach yourself somewhat from, the anchoring process that you go through and become a little more of a visionary. But yeah, I'm at 10 X revenues or 20 X revenues. Yeah. I'm yet to find one where I've been willing to pay that kind of a price, even on an incredibly high margin structure, because I have a hard time looking out five, 10, 15, 20 years and assuming everything that has to go right is going to go right. Okay. Any uh, concluding thoughts, anyone? So I guess we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much, guys, uh, for this uh, fascinating discussion. And thanks, uh, everyone, for listening. Looking forward to uh, having you with us again next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.